If you have your Bibles at home, I would encourage you to have them open to 1 Samuel chapter 31, as we will be going through that text here uh, this morning. Uh, I'm glad that we can kind of be together here this morning. Believe it or not, uh, I didn't become a pastor so that I could talk to cameras. (laughs) Uh, But I'm very grateful that we can fellowship in some limited way during this time. So as you uh, open up to that, uh, let me ask you this question. Who is man and what is his main problem? There are a lot of different answers we can give to that question, and depending on who you ask, that answer will be, of course, different. But as a whole, as a people, we've moved from what can be described as a moral understanding of life in the world to a therapeutic understanding of life in the world. In a moral world, what matters is character, virtue, doing what is right and good, because there's this external moral standard that everyone will be judged by. But in a therapeutic world, what ultimately ends up mattering is therapy, or feeling good. Your feelings become the dominant measure of right and wrong. So anything that causes pain or discomfort becomes automatically bad or evil. The good life is then defined as as much pleasure or self-esteem or getting everything you want. And in a therapeutic world, all of our problems are located, or at least we think they are, external. If someone thinks poorly about me, that's a problem because it makes me feel bad about myself. Uh, My problems in my life are probably caused by bad influences in society, our power inequalities, or even now today, the primary culprit, a virus. How could there, or sometimes even we think, how could there ever be someone out there who disagrees with me? Well, you're really not that important. There are lots of people who would disagree with you. Our problems are moved outside of ourselves to out, or from inside of ourselves to outside of ourselves, and they're foisted upon us by external forces. Even now, someone's biology is considered external to who they actually are in their selves, and that too can be changed. If we have no external moral code, then the only thing that is left is me and what I want and how I feel. So nothing is ever my fault. It's always the fault of someone else, either society or illness or upbringing or government or oppression or whatever. Now the truth is, all of those things can be complicating factors in your life. They can make things more difficult. But ultimately, in a moral world, you're responsible for your own behavior and your own actions. And that is exactly what the Bible teaches. That even if you were to be slapped in the face by someone, Christ says, turn the other cheek and offer that one to them too. Why? Because external forces do not change your own moral obligation before God. But ours is a day of victimhood. Everybody (laughs) views themselves as being wronged because, again, we think in therapeutic terms. So everyone is a victim. And the people who really get damaged in such thinking are those who are actually real victims. Being wrong, being wronged is not something that we leverage. It's not something that we 
are to seek out, and it's not something we use to further our own agendas or to get ahead. We should not be lining up our grievances and pointing the finger at everyone else. Instead, we're to examine our own hearts first. And it's really sad to say that this thinking has infiltrated Christ's church. Many people, when they talk about Christianity, when they talk about the gospel, they talk about it in these therapeutic terms. Well, how do I know that I'm a Christian? Well, Christ helps me to overcome my self-doubts. He helps me to overcome what other people have done to me and what other people think about me. And I want to say as plainly as I can, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not even close. To be clear, there are certainly advantages to being a mature Christian, and the gospel and the truths of Scripture can help you overcome things in this life, but the primary problem you have in your life, each and every individual, is inside your own heart. Your primary problem is that you have a hard heart that rebels against God and desires sin instead of righteousness. And what the gospel primarily helps us to overcome is that sinfulness, our moral guilt before a holy God, and our temptation to continually give in to that sin. So to say it again, you, me, we are the main problem. Not society, not your parents, and not some outside Oppression. Your main problem is that you hate God and you think that's okay. And coincidentally, this is also Saul's problem. As we've been tracing throughout the book of 1 Samuel here, it's been going on for quite some time that all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, God had, told Sam, or had, God had told Saul through the prophet Samuel that he was going to take the kingdom from him. Why? Well, before that, Saul had gathered his armies together so that they could fight against the enemies of Israel. And Samuel had told him, don't offer these sacrifices until I get back. But then Samuel was late. And Saul said, well, you know, the problem here is actually that Samuel's late and the people start to get restless and want to leave. So what does Saul do? He breaks the commands of God and he offers the sacrifice himself. And this leads the prophet Samuel to say, God is going to take the kingdom from you. And as we go throughout the rest of Saul's reign as king, you can see time and time again, he blames everybody else besides himself. Saul's killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. Well, you know what the problem is, isn't is David. So he chases his most successful general out of town and spends much of the rest of the book trying to kill him, even though God had said, the kingdom will no longer be yours. What is God teaching us through this end of this cycle of the story? Saul's gone now, he's dead. What should we take from it? I'll give you four, four things this morning. The first is this. Be careful what you ask for. Saul is the king that the people demanded from God. And the people gathered together in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They gathered together and they said to Samuel, they said, we want a king. 
And we want a king like, our, our, like the nations our enemies have. And God and Samuel warn them. They say, this is what it's going to be like if you get a king like the nations. And they say, we don't care. We want that. And what we're really witnessing here with Saul is kind of a continuation of the cycle of the book of Judges. The people are oppressed, and they call out for a deliverer, or they repent, and God gives them a deliverer, and then they go back into the cycle again and again. They, they sin again and again. And this is what we see with Saul. They wanted to be like the world, and God says to them, okay, I'm going to give you a king. And this king is going to be just like the kings of the Amorites, of the Philistines, of the Egyptians, He's going to be just like them. So he picked Saul, tall and proud and ultimately impotent, unable to do anything at all. He only cared for himself in the opinion of the people he ruled and not at all about what God thought about him. So it shouldn't be any surprise to us that at the end of Saul's reign, it comes to absolutely nothing. Saul disobeyed God. He murdered some of his own people. He chased out David and tried to murder him. He consulted with a witch. He is a king like the nations. And it's ironic to note that as you read 1 Samuel as a whole, right before Saul becomes king, the Philistines were taking over Israel. 1 Samuel 4, they took the Ark of the Covenant captive. Now, they didn't go too well to them, they, for them uh, because the Ark of the Covenant ended up defeating them without the people of Israel. But they're on the edge of a knife with the Philistines. So God raises up Saul. And then you know what happens at the end of Saul's reign? They're on the edge of a knife with the Philistines again. In fact, if you look at uh, the defeat of Israel in 1 Samuel 4 in that early section, from the Philistines, and then in 1 Samuel 31, the same wording is used in those two passages to describe the state of Israel. And it's not used anywhere else in the rest of the book for, Philistine, or for, for, for the Philistines and Israel. The careful reader notices that what we're being told here is that Saul was raised up to take care of the Philistines, and ultimately he's killed by the Philistines. He's a failure. His kingship amounts to nothing. One of the ways God judges us is by giving us the very things we want more than him. For Israel, it was a king like the nations. In Romans 1, we read, as Paul writes, that God hands us over to our desires as we worship the created things instead of the creator, that God will, as an act of judgment, give us the very things that we want instead of him. This is always the end result of following your own heart over and against God. If we desire evil, God will give it to us. Church, we really do have to let that one sink in. If throughout your life you are marked by a pursuit of evil things, don't be surprised when God gives those things to you. We need to learn to change our desires, to repent 
of our sins, to renounce them, and to work with the Spirit in transforming how we think, feel, and act. The Bible leaves us no room whatsoever for a therapeutic view of reality. Our problems start here. And if we don't address them internally first, we can't do anything else. The second thing we see in this passage is that God will judge everyone. Again, here's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. Genesis 3, all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. That God will judge everyone. That has been appointed for man to live once and then to die and face the judgment of God. And we don't like talking about that, probably because we know that we're all very guilty. Saul, throughout his reign, was warned many times. He was warned over and over again. Even his own son, Jonathan, knew that Saul shouldn't be king and that David should be. And yet Saul only hardened his heart. He could have stepped down. He could have repented at any time. But instead, he continues to rebel. And it ends with him surrounded by the dead bodies of his armies, his sons, and him casting himself upon a sword so that he might die. Sin, unfaithfulness, will always bring the judgment of God. There are no exceptions. We need to hear this because that ju- part of that judgment has come upon us. I'm not going to point out, say, what is happening today is because of this specific sin. God has not given us that type of revelation, but he has told us throughout the Bible that when things like this happen, it is always a judgment of sin in general. And it's always an opportunity to repent. Saul faced other judgments. And instead of repenting, he passed the blame to someone else. And one of the good things about God's judgment is if it doesn't kill you, That means he's given you more time to repent. And it's actually a mercy. Some of you are living in unrepentant sin right now. And you've convinced yourself for whatever reason that it's okay. And when you do that, you are Saul. Don't be surprised when that sin falls upon your own head. You've received warning after warning after warning. And the story of Saul should teach you that that sin is not worth it. If you think you can claim God's name and walk around in rebellious sin against him, all you have to do is to see this story of Saul. God's anointed one of his people. And he's absolutely cast down by the enemies of God. And that judgment is only the earthly judgment that he faced. That's why we don't like talking about it. Again, because you and I know that we're guilty. Even if you don't admit it to yourself, you know that you are. And the holiness of God and his wrath hangs over the heads of everyone who is not in Christ at this moment. And if you were to die today, that wrath would be poured out upon you. So let's let's apply this 
to this situation here. Everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of people are losing their minds over a tiny, minuscule virus. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't take precautions. I'm not saying that at all. But if we just look at the odds of this, even the high-end odds of this right now is that 1% of the people who get this virus will die. The low end, I just read from a couple Stanford professors, is 0.01%. That's 1 in 10,000 versus 1 in 100. Big gap. We don't know. We won't know for a while. But we do know from Scripture that there is an absolute 100% chance that you will face the judgment of God. And no one's hoarding toilet paper or locking themselves in their house and repenting. Your danger from the wrath of God is far more certain than some tiny virus. And even though this virus is a judgment of God, it is but a tenth, not even a tenth, of his wrath. Nothing can save you from that judgment of God but the name of Christ alone. You can't be good enough. It's not about who you are. It's not about how many times you go to church. It's not about your good works. It is about him and him alone. It is about humbling yourself in repentance and faith. For God is a consuming fire, and his holiness will destroy all evil. And hell is a real place, and it is a terrible place where God unleashes his full wrath upon those who only ever hardened their hearts. So instead of focusing about fear about some virus, you should think first about fearing the Lord God. For one day, if you do not repent, that wrath will fall upon you. Saul's temporal judgment here points us to this reality. And the Bible talks about it over and over again. Psalm 7, 11 through 13. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Psalm 11, 5 through 6. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Revelation 19, 15. From his mouth, that is Jesus, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with an, a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's the end of all sin. Brothers and sisters, God hates your sin. Don't think otherwise. There were years between Saul being told he'd lose the kingdom and his demise. And he probably thought to himself, I'm going to get away with this. But that's not the way it works. Now surely, some of you are thinking, but what about my ongoing struggle with sin? Well, the test of genuine faith is not sinlessness, but what you do when you do sin. 
If you live in it, if you excuse it, you say it's worth presume upon the grace of God and continue on as if it's no big deal, then you may not really know Christ as you should. But if when you sin, you renounce it, you ask God for mercy, you seek to renew your mind and the fall upon the grace of God, then you can have great assurance that you have been saved by grace through faith. And I want to encourage you that if you feel conviction today, it would be really easy to turn off the screen and go about your life and never do anything about it. Do not be like Saul. Run to Christ, who is also a God who loves to forgive. That leads us to our third point. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God is not just the God of judgment, but he is the one who always moves to save his people. So God promised David, he said, hey, you're going to be king. Right, you're going to be king and not Saul and not Saul's son. But for most of this book, David is the one running for his life. And David even has, has opportunities to take the throne by force and kill Saul. But he refuses. Why? Because ultimately, it is God who must give him the throne. Ultimately, it is God who will deliver him. And that's exactly what he does. Saul ends up dying by his own hand with all of his heirs dead beside him. And we see this theme again running throughout Scripture that God often brings salvation to his people through judgment. How is David saved? Because God judged Saul. How was Israel saved from slavery? Because God judged Egypt. How is Israel saved from the exile because God judges Babylon. How will the, will the church be saved in the last days? Because God pours out his judgment upon the nations. And the pinnacle of this theme, of course, is Christ upon the cross. That God saves us by and through judging Jesus Christ. That salvation is offered to all who would repent and believe because Jesus took that full, unmitigated wrath of God upon himself in place of you. And therefore, there is nothing left to be judged for those who have repented and believed. So as I've stated, at this point in our story, Saul's dead the people are vulnerable yet again to the Philistines. And so what does God do? Through the judgment, he raises up David, not just to save David, but to save Israel from the Philistines. So the refrain throughout scripture is true. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If we are to be saved, it will ultimately come from his hand. Whether it's sickness or pandemics or eternal salvation, there is no salvation unless he brings it. This is true, especially for our eternal standing before God. The Old Testament spends all this time setting up these categories for you and I to understand who this Jesus is. David, in other words, is a type or a foreshadow of a greater David who is God the Son, Jesus Christ. For as great as David is, he ultimately fails too. 
that even the best of us humans is not enough to bring in salvation. And this is why God the Son comes down to us and to become one of us. We needed a Savior who was one of us, but as we see through Moses, Abraham, David, Solomon, all these great figures of the Old Testament, that none of them get even close to bringing in those promises. Our Savior had to be one of us, yet he had to be so much more than us. So as the angel declares to Mary, your son will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Fully God and fully man. The very Savior that we need. God has moved to save us from that wrath through his own son, Jesus Christ. Our fourth and final thing we need to see is that God will be our king. When the leaders of Israel demanded a king, Samuel went before God and, he told, and God then said this to Samuel. He said, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Ultimately, Israel's request was them saying no to God. They did not want God to be their king. Instead, they wanted a man to be their king. And really, what Israel does here has echoes of what Adam and Eve do in the garden. God was their good king. He was ruling over them. He gave them a good law to obey. And the serpent comes in and says, hey, Eve, if you do this, you'll be like God. You'll be your own king. You can decide for yourself what is good and right. But it didn't exactly work out that way. The truth is, God never stopped being our king. We just stopped recognizing it. So when God established Israel, he was putting himself up as king again of his people. But by picking Saul, his people had said, no, we don't want you to be king. And of course, predictably, Saul fails. So God chooses David, a shepherd boy, a man after God's own heart, to be the heir to the throne. Saul was a man after the people's own heart. That means after their own choosing. Saul was the one the people wanted. David, a man after God's own heart, was the one that God chose. He's the type of king that God wanted. And all this leads us eventually to the son of David, Jesus Christ, from David's line. The prophet Ezekiel is very helpful for us to understand this. In Ezekiel chapter 4, right after the prophet has gone on a tangent or a long railing against the leaders of Israel, calling them basically selfish, fat, and evil shepherds, he talks about this good shepherd who will come and save God's people. It says this, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search out for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been, they've been scattered on days of cloud and thick darkness. 
And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I myself will be the shepherd of my people, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. God's saying here, I'm going to be your shepherd. I am going to be your king. But as he explains this, further in Ezekiel 34, he then says this, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David. And he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be the prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. God says, I'm going to be your king, and David's going to be your king. And you're like, how does that happen? Well, the New Testament tells us exactly how. The incarnation of God the Son in the line of David. This leads Jesus in John 10 to declare that I am the good shepherd, pointing back to Ezekiel 34. I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And in this way, through David's line, God restores himself as the king over his people through his son, Jesus Christ. And now Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. He's been given the name above every name so that one day every knee will bow and confess that he is the Christ or the Messiah or the King. Jesus Christ is our King. And this means that God is our King. And he will one day judge the world in righteousness. So what should we take out of all this? Let me give you a few closing remarks. First, on faithfulness, betrayal, and rebellion against the king will be judged. There is no thing or no such thing as a small or insignificant sin. Everyone who lives in utter rebellion to the rule of God will be judged. So you should make it a habit to not excuse, rationalize, or get comfortable with your sin. And you should remember Saul so that you will not end up like him. Therefore, repent while you can. Second, consider who rules your life. Are you following the commands of your King Jesus? Or are you like Israel from earlier in this book saying, we want a ruler like this world? Know that all other authorities in this world, if they are not consciously bowing the knee to Christ, are fakes and frauds and they have no power to save you. There is only one good shepherd and he saves and he loves to save those who come to him. Finally, if Christ is already your king, then you have a great source of comfort. He has saved you by his death and resurrection, and he will save you on that last day. Trust him to meet your needs. Trust him to work out all of world history for the good of his people and his own glory. Because we can only overcome through the lamb who was slain, our good shepherd and king, Jesus Christ.
Let's praise him this morning. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God who has spoken, that you are a God who has revealed himself to us so that we might be saved. Lord, we ask that in these uncertain times that our confidence and our faith in you would grow, that we would look within and see our own bent sinful natures, and that we would renounce them, we would repent, and that we would find surety and confidence in the forgiveness, the total forgiveness you have offered us in Christ. Lord, we pray for you to do mighty things, to soften hearts, and to bring many into your kingdom. And Lord, hasten to us soon that we might see your salvation. It's in your name we pray. Amen.